On the 31st of October, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg. And this has ever since been identified as the trigger point for a cultural, political, economic, and spiritual revolution for Europe and for uh, English-speaking countries such as America, into the, uh, Africa, and the benefits of what he did are still felt today. He said that he had found, or better still, rediscovered a better way revolutionary, a way to be right with God, which was by grace alone. We would say the gospel had been rediscovered. And I'd like us to think about these benefits, which I've mentioned each time, but I'd like us this morning to think about those. It's a little bit different, a little bit different. But what are the benefits, the cultural, political, economic, spiritual benefits and in what way do we still enjoy them? And how, how should we be excited by those things? That's what I'd like us to look at this morning. So here's Martin Luther, sort of this summing up what he, the, the revolution that happened in his personal life. I was a devout monk and wanted to force God to justify me because of my works and the severity of my life. I was a good monk and kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I would have gotten there as well. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other works until he realized it's not by our human endeavors, but by the blood of the Lamb. And he came to the point of seeing the righteousness which I am trying so hard to work up is actually something that Jesus gives me from outside. And I receive it by faith as a gift. And that's how I'm right with God. How does that affect anything else? How does that thinking, how does that um, revolutionary understanding of relationship with God, how does that spill out to anything else? How does it trigger cultural, political, economic, spiritual revolution? Well, let's just get what the idea is that we're talking about. Here is the text, or a text, that summarizes this so well. I put it on the side there. It's from Ephesians. Let me get my Bible and read it to you. We looked at it last time, and it is this revolutionary understanding which says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This idea that we are brought into saving relationship with God as our Heavenly Father we are justified, 
meaning that uh, we are that God puts us in the box that says righteous congratulations blessed I'm on your side you're with me I'm with you he puts us into that box by his grace he adopts us as his family not by works that we have done because of God's grace given to us in and through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again isn't that wonderful that's how we come to God he lavishes his kindness on us. He pours out his love on us who don't deserve it. He just does it. And we receive that by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to explore this grace, we'd find it extends right back to God's own mysterious eternal plan. Right back before we were born, God planned this. Before the world was made, he was thinking about us to bring us into his heavenly kingdom. So this is this, this colossal thought, this amazing thought. And it gets, if you can put it in little slogans, sola scriptura, this is by scripture alone. That's where we get it from. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solo Christo, through Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Now if you take those thoughts, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, to God alone be the glory. They're actually big enough and strong enough to frame a total approach to life. They're so comprehensive, they cover every department of life. And you could call it a life system. If you wanted to call it that, you could call it a life system. Uh, so Abraham Kuyper who was a Dutch, uh, well, he was all sorts of things. He was a theologian, he was a church minister, I believe he was prime minister, he ran a newspaper, he just did everything, amazing man. Um, he gave, gave lectures in America, I've forgotten the dates, I'm not very good at remembering dates, I think early 1900s, he went over to America, and he gave um, a series of lectures on the way that his faith affected everything. Uh, and, and, uh, and he thought about it very carefully. The, the lectures are called Lectures on Calvinism. It's not really just Calvinism, but it, 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 it's about how the gospel affects the whole of our lives. And he called it a life system. You can get Kuiper's Lectures on Calvinism on... I've got them on Kobo, uh, £1.98. And uh, if, you've got, uh, if you've got the tenacity to read through text from that part of the, the uh, it's written in that style but it's very very well worth reading um, lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper he called it a life system nowadays we might call it a world view that is to say an understanding of how the world is which marries up with a commitment of the heart 
a worldview. This is how I see the world, and this is how I engage with the world. This is how I see the purpose of the world. This is how I understand the world. This is how I understand my place in the world. And that's really what I want to try and have a little nibble at this morning. What, does, what sort of qualities will this life system or this view of the world have? Well, it'll say this about God, that he's holier than we ever thought. He is holier. His, what he expects, what he is like in his brilliant majesty is more than we could have ever thought. And his plans and purposes are deeper than we ever thought. He's a bigger, greater, grander God than we had thought before we learned all this. And he is kinder than we thought. His grace is deeper than we could ever have imagined. And and thus we say, how great is our God. To him alone be the glory. You can see why when this gets put into slogans, it's totally appropriate to say, when we've seen it's grace alone, faith alone, to God be the glory alone. You can see how that fits, can't you? It's just so grand a view of God's work of salvation and who he is. And then in this system, if you want to call it that way, or this worldview, what do we think about human beings? They're more sinful than we'd thought. We thought sin was just, we might have thought, we might have thought before Reformation ideas, we might have thought, well, sin is just sort of oddities, just one or two sins that a few very evil people commit, but most of us are quite good. But the, this this understanding shows actually we're all terribly, terribly sinful. We're more sinful than we thought. Sin is worse than we thought. But as Christians, we're more blessed than we thought. We hadn't quite realized how great a blessing God had given us until we grasped it's by grace and what that grace includes and involves. And I could add to that, human beings are more valuable than we'd thought. Made in the image of God, How God must love sinners to go to such lengths to win them back. And about Jesus Christ, we think how great he is. He is the complete and adequate savior. I use the word adequate, I think that's a very small word for how great Jesus is, but it's a a right word in this sense. He does what I need. He brings me to the Father. I am brought to the Father through him. I don't need a priest. I don't need icons and idols. I don't need to reenact the mass every week. Jesus does everything. There's no room for anything else to save me than just him. He's a totally sufficient and adequate savior. And this great savior sets me free to live my whole life for him in love. Because what he's done is so captivates my heart. Am I right? We th- what he's done, we can only just be so grateful to him and love him and say, my whole life, Lord, is at your disposal. What else could we say when uh, he's done this all for us, all through grace? So you see, there's a, um, in, in, our, in the way we now approach the world, we've got some vast and powerful thoughts 
uh, in our hearts and minds. It would be wrong to think that salvation in this world, anything that really counts in this world is by cleverness or power or willpower or beauty or strength or wisdom or riches or high birth. The things that really count are by grace. So kind and wonderful that I give my life to him willingly and completely. It's great to be clever. It's a good gift of God, but I'm not going to worship cleverness. I'm going to worship Jesus. It's, it's a great gift to be beautiful, but I'm not going to give my life trying to make myself beautiful. All the beauty I need comes from my Lord Jesus Christ. Um, some people are high-born, some people are humbly-born, and I'm not going to be too bothered about that, because even the high-born king or lord or lady or baron or whatever they might be, they're sinners. They need the Savior just as me. And if I'm saved and they're saved, they're no more saved than I am and I'm no more saved than they are. So I'd like to take those ideas and try to show how uh, in five ways this now spills out into the whole of life and can affect the politics, economic, culture, just everything in a very profound way. So I'll give you some health warnings first, just to be fair. Uh, this talk is not brought to you by a specialist historian, sociologist, or philosopher. I'm going to touch on some of those matters, but the person who's speaking to you is an amateur in these, and you need to check them up uh, properly. If you, if you want to check them, please do check them. Not all the things I'm going to talk about work through with equal speed. Uh, some of these things work through over centuries. I can think of one particular example. Please, I am not saying that only Reformation Christians get these ideas or do these things, but I'm saying that Reformation Christians have got a much better handle on them. Actually, Christians can live better or worse than their doctrinal understanding. You can have some Christians who know very little uh, theology but live beautiful, holy lives, and you get some Christians who have masses of theology but really put very little of it into, into practice. I am not saying that the true work of God is the right ideas the, true, the work of God is that we should be born again. Jesus said that. That's what you need. You need to be born again. If you're not born again, that's what you need. You need to ask the Savior, give me that in my life. Make me yours. Forgive my sins. Change my heart. Take my life. And I'm not saying that all Reformed Christians do all these things as they should. But I am saying that the five principles we will look at have great power to change people and change cultures and change nations. Okay, those are the health warnings. Here's number one. Reformation Christianity has a powerful tendency towards equality in society. So you find the Apostle Paul saying things like this. This isn't really about Jew and Gentile. He says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, they've all sinned. And they've fallen short of the glory of God. 
So Jew and Gentile are on a level footing. They're both sinning. And they are both justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. The word freely there, you could translate gratuitously. It's the same word that you'd say about that man who hit my dad's friend on the mouth for no reason. Yes? He just did it for no reason. And God justifies freely for no reason other than the grace of God which is in Christ Jesus, the redemption in Christ Jesus. So, follow the thought of this. If salvation is by grace, it's entirely possible for a king to be kneeling in prayer, equally accepted next to a ploughboy. Just think of that thought in medieval society when Martin Luther and people like that were grasping that. The king is no closer to God than the road sweeper if they come by grace. Now imagine that that's a dynamite thought, isn't it? No wonder kings trembled and would prefer to have this shut up in many cases. The last thing they wanted was people reading this sort of revolutionary stuff in the Bible. So a cardinal can be as close to God as a car mechanic, or an ex-prostitute can be as close to God as a government head, or a judge is as close to God as a mother struggling with six small children, or an Ethiopian is as close to God as an Italian, and they could sit next to each other and pray together on an equal basis. Isn't that remarkable? And you could see what effect this will have on culture. Compare it, if you would, to a Hindu culture where we, we might be told the story that uh, at some time in the past, uh, the body of God was divided into three parts. They, let's see, the head, the chest, the thighs, and the feet. And each part of society is linked to one of those. So the Brahmins are the head and the untouchables are the feet. And if you're a Brahmin, you're always superior. And if your family is untouchable, you're always inferior. Just think of what effect that has on society, if that's the story in the back of your mind. Now, come back to Reformation society. If the, if the thing in the back of your mind is that the king is actually no closer to God than the ploughboy, doesn't this mean that the culture that is produced is one of humility and service? So, hierarchies you know, where I bow down to him and he bows down to them and he bows down to them and we all bow down to him. That sort of thing is, I mean, it may well happen, it may well be some sort of place for it, but that's not the fundamental truth about our society. Do you get that point? So in church life, it's no accident that Roman Catholicism tends to have a huge number of hierarchies, doesn't it? Bishops, archbishops, cardinals, you know, I don't know. Boom, 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 layer upon layer with one chap at the top. And the effect of Reformation thinking is to really question that. Why, cardinal, are you wearing these remarkable... You've seen cardinals, you see them in pictures and pictures of the Vatican, so... 
purple, I don't know what the cardinals wear, purple gowns and funny hats and things like that. You th you, you, on this understanding of Christ, you, surely the question would cross your mind, why are you wearing different clothes to us? Are you ra rather more special than us? No, the Bible tells you no different. We're all sinners saved by grace. Things like that, you would qu begin to question in a society that had really got the hang of grace. And in po politics, the great government leader, the government head, uh, what would you call him? His Excellency, um, my Lord? Or would you actually give him this, the title minister? Because minister means servant. It's interesting, politically, you might start thinking of a democratic system in which the people who lead you are actually serving you. And you might even start putting that into the vocabulary that you use and, and call the government leaders servants. Well, strangely enough, um, we do have something like that in our own system here, don't we? And I would suggest that that's because of Reformation thinking that's permeated through our society. And you, wouldn't you also say in political responsibility, would it not be appropriate for the king and the plowboy and the ex-prostitute and the mother of six small children and the Ethiopian who lives there and the Italian who lives there all to have one vote each? I mean, they all approach God the same, don't they? So wouldn't it be natural for them to have one vote each? So don't, it isn't just the kings who say what's happening, or the nobles, but everybody gets involved. Wouldn't you say that there's a tendency for Reformation thinking to produce democratic societies? Well, I think that makes sense, and you'll see why I said it took, takes hundreds of years for these things to work through because, in fact, votes for women in the UK only came in in... No, yeah, if you watch Mary Poppins, which is a very good source of historical information, of course, isn't uh, the woman... Uh, isn't, is she going out votes for women? Yes. yes, she is. So next time you see Mary Poppins, you can try and work out what it was in. Anyway, so there's number one, a tendency, a powerful tendency to do something about equality in society. Number two, a tendency to produce fruitful work on honest trade. So I'll give you a Bible verse. We had read in Ephesians something about uh, slaves and masters, and we get a similar thing in Colossians. And the Colossians version says this. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, that's, that was written in the Bible. That was written there long before the Reformation. People could have taken notice of it before that. 
and, 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 and maybe they did. But after the Reformation, they certainly did. It is the Lord you are serving. To God alone be the glory with all my life. All human life can be worship. That's a revolutionary thought. Work becomes meaningful rather than just drudgery to get as much money as I can for as little effort as possible. Did you get that? Work becomes worship. It, to the Colossians, he says, whatever you do, to the slaves, okay, here's a slave uh, cleaning out the toilets, and he says to that slave, you're doing it for the Lord. Do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's quite amazing, isn't it? Who is watching me do this? Well, nobody. The boss has gone off for a cigarette break. Well, actually, the Lord Jesus is watching me. And who cares that I do it? Well, the boss doesn't care that much, but the Lord Jesus does. I do it for him. I've offered this to him. It makes it worth something. And it says he'll reward me. On the last day, he'll say, I notice what you did. Well done. Sin is bad and matters even when no one sees but God. That's what we've learned from the gospel. And therefore, we can't cheat and lie and buy our way out of it with indulgences. That's a very sloppy view of sin. Sin is much worse than that. So when we make a product and we put the safety information on it, for Reformation Christians, we won't say to the client, well, what would you like, the, what would you like this to say? What would you like to say, 100, 120 kilograms per square meter? Yeah, well, okay, we can easily write that. Have you tested, have you tested it? No, we, we're just going to write this on the outside. That's fine, isn't it? That's all they're going to look at. We're not going to do that, are we? If we're Reformation Christians, we'll see that cheating is not just something we do if we can get away with it. Cheating matters to God. And if we've got some product that is supposed to be safe in a certain way, we will test it and we will only write on the outside of it what it actually is. That's rather a revolutionary thought, isn't it? But in a Reformation society, that would be the thought that people would think. Yeah, of course we'll do that. God's watching us. We're doing this for the Lord. Righteousness is beautiful and attractive, even if it has financial or other penalties. Do it with all your heart. You might be a bit late home. Well, do it. you'll still do it with all your heart. Uh, people might make fun of you. Well, still do it with all your heart. People, you might get into trouble because you haven't cheated the way the rest of the people in your firm do. Well, you still do it for the Lord. Righteousness is beautiful and attractive, even if it has financial or other penalties. And we serve the Lord Christ, even for a Reformation plumber, even when plumbing under the bath that no one will ever see because the cover goes over it. Isn't that right, Enid? So a Reformation plumber would, wouldn't say, I'll use, I won't actually do all the work under the bath here because nobody's ever going to see it. They'll do it because the Lord sees it. And there's a name for this. This is invented, the name is invented by a sociologist, an economist, I believe he was, Max Weber, in 1904, and he called it the Protestant work ethic. And uh, his, 
his idea was that this way of thinking is suggested to be the secret of why Europe developed as it did post-Reformation uh, economically, commercially, industrially. And it's certainly true, isn't it? Europe, uh, by and large, I mean, this is a sort of sociological comment, there is, uh, um, if you look at particularly the German economy, the uh, uh, vitality, the industry, the quality, it comes from something. And the suggestion is you can trace it back to the effect of the Reformation. Just imagine if you had a, a workforce of people who had been converted and, and, and they all said, I'm going to do my work for the Lord. What, a, what, a, what an economic difference that would make. So that my second point here is that Reformation thinking tends to produce fruitful work and honest trade. Number three, priests and clerics are not high and between us and God as superior. Uh, my text here is that we don't, have, we don't need any other priest than Jesus. Uh, it's said of him, such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, the Son of God. That's right, isn't it? We don't, the only person who stands between us and God is the Lord Jesus, who holds the Father's hand, if you like, and holds our hand and brings us together. We don't need anybody else in, in the way. Uh, oh, this is a, uh, an anecdote from Dick Lucas, who says he went to a funeral, and when he was at the crematorium, there were three sets of toilets, and they were labeled as follows. Men... Women, clergy. Strikes me as funny. Uh, why, why, do, why do clergy have their own toilet? Are they not men? Are they not women? They must be some, they're not human. The idea that uh, the priests or the clergy or the clerics are a different sort of breed and stand between the ordinary people and God the Reformation tends to uh, flatten that thought. It doesn't always succeed, but it tends to flatten that thought. Pastors and ministers are not higher level Christians. What we have is the priesthood in the Bible, the priesthood of all believers. All believers have access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in a non-reformed Eastern Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox church, let me, I've been to a Greek Orthodox church. I don't know whether any of you have. Orthodox will be somewhat similar to what I'm about to describe. So this is how worship operates in a Greek Orthodox church. Very over simply. Okay, you're the punters. You turn up. You sit. And you talk to one another. You every now and again stand up and sit down. I think most of the time you stand up actually. But what really happens is there's a wall here. And the priest who has a long beard, does all the worship stuff behind the wall, like that, swinging something round and smells and doing stuff. And the worship is done here, and you just watch, because you're not priests. You don't have access to God. The priest will do that for you, but you just, you just watch, you can chat. I mean, it still goes on. 
You can talk to one another, clinch a few deals, see how the kids are doing, all that sort of thing. But the worship goes on over here, and you can't get to that. It's a very different thought, isn't it? To the priesthood of all believers, you don't need someone else to stand between you and God because we all have access to God. And God is served by the plumber when he does his plumbing and the baker when he does his baking and the carpenter and the mother when she, uh, when she changes nappies on her children no less than by the cardinal, the pope, the evangelist and the pastor. They're all serving God. It's all worship. Slightly like the thought I had before, but I think I'm just trying to spell this out in this case. My whole life can be worship. And just to think of the effect on people who are shelf stacking or car washing or studying. That was number three. Number four, sexuality in the service of God. So let's add to the picture of Luther. Oh, sorry, let's, let's do the text. Here's the text. This text existed before, but I think it came with a particular poignancy and particular power uh, post-Reformation. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Two remarkably difficult but remarkably beautiful commands for the wife to submit to her husband as to the Lord and for the husband to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. Just remarkable things to to plonk into human society. That's how it meant to be. It's a Christian insight. And in the Reformation, let me introduce you to uh, Katharina von Bura. When Luther was 41, an ex-monk, Katharina von Bura was 26. She was a nun. She escaped from her convent, wishing to embrace Reformation ideas. She, it was arranged for her to escape by her and her, some of her friends hiding in, in fish barrels. I presume the barrels must have been of a reasonable size, otherwise she'd have been very, very squashed. She arrived in Wittenberg. She must have been quite a woman, because uh, she said, now I'm here, I want to get married. Uh, there's only two men I'm prepared to marry. Uh, one is uh, um, Mr. Ansdorf, who was high up. Alternatively, I'll marry Luther, but I'm not going to marry anybody else apart from these two guys. That's it. She must have been quite a woman, mustn't she? And Luther uh, thought carefully about this, uh, because some of his friends said, oh, I'll just mess you about if you get married. And uh, he, he thought, no, I, I will get married, actually. And this is his reasoning. Uh, he believed that his marriage would, A, please his father... B, rile the Pope. C, 
caused the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. So lo and behold, they got married and they loved each other very, very deeply. Um, he refers, I don't know whether this is in writing or in conversation to her as my Lord Katie. And she, in public, always referred to him as Sir Doctor. Isn't that charming? Sir Doctor, would you like some cornflakes? <laughs> yes, my Lord Katie. <laughs> but they had, uh, I think, had seven children, or quite a lot of children. Um, and he took this as being part of his Christian liberty and indeed the, the Christian richness of life to get married. When I wished to take my Katie, I prayed to God earnestly, and he says, this, I'm quoting this from his table talk, uh, and he, uh, somebody's asking him, and he says, you should, you should also pray that God will give you a good wife. So he's bringing back sexuality into the service of God, and it was a big, big thing, because previously it was thought to be more holy and more suitable for priests and, uh, and ministers not to be married. It was thought to be more holy to be unmarried in some, in some way. Now, there's, you, the, the, God calls people differently. And uh, there is a usefulness in being single. So don't, don't hear me to say different to that. There is a usefulness and a blessedness to being single. But there's also a usefulness and a blessedness to being married. And uh, that's the one that Luther went for. And he did this under the word of God, to the glory of God, with the help of God. That's sexuality brought into the service of God. So, the idea that celibacy was superior was torpedoed. God calls some people to singleness, but he calls some people to being married, and there's a blessing in both. Nowadays, reformational thinking isn't quite set up against the same target, is it? But reformational thinking is now against a different target. The human definition, the human idea that you can self-define sexuality. You can make it up for yourself. You can decide this human idea. You, can, you don't have to ask God what gender he's given you. You can make that up for yourself. And reformation ideas... Push against, uh, are pushing against that. Pushing against the idea that sex is for my self-fulfillment rather than for the glory of God. Uh, pressing against the idea that f the total goal is to be free. And if I can be free, that's the thing. Whereas God is saying, what I want you to be is for my glory. I want you to live for my glory. Whether you are single, live for my glory. If you are married, live for my glory. If you're deciding which to be, think what is most going to glorify God rather than what is most going to fulfill me. That's quite a powerful thought, isn't it? Don't you agree? Sexuality in the service of God uh, as a Reformation Christianity. Number five. The whole earth is the Lord's. Well, everybody knew that, but I think it, it, it begins to take a new purchase after the Reformation. What does salvation do? It makes us human. 
Interesting. Salvation doesn't make us into angels. It makes us into the human beings God wanted us to be. The Lord Jesus Christ, as our ideal and model, is human. He comes, he's not like Superman that can fly through the air. He walks. He does the things that human beings do. He talks in human language. Salvation, the aim of salvation is to make us truly human. And Ephesians 4.23 says, To be made new in the spirit of your minds and put on the new man, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this Reformation thinking um, seems to me to have all sorts of implications. So, for example, music. Now, Luther was a musician. And in the praise the praise uh, explanation of the songs, you can look that up online, it says this about Martin Luther, he was a skilled musician, and although his use of congregational singing was not new, because Huss and his followers sang hymns, he developed vernacular hymnody with doctrinal and intelligible words, sung to user-friendly tunes, as none had done before him, and no major Reformation figure did afterwards. That's just what it says in praise. So music, we can use music in the service of God. Music is a human activity. And he's, he's saying, well, let's use that. So he would take uh, German folk melodies and he would put Christian words, so we can use that. Uh, he developed vernacular hymnody, which means ordinary people can sing it. You don't have to be a trained singer. It's not, it doesn't go so high and so weird. And it's doctrinal and intelligible, so everybody can understand it. And it teaches you something. You go away thinking, I've learned something. I can remember that. And when I sing it to myself, I can remind myself of true things. Now, not all the Reformation followed through in the same way, but here's Lutheran music. Now, Reformation art. Oh, we'd love to have Ellis Potter here from Labrie talking about art. But anyway, uh, let me not get on to that. When we went to Venice. Has anybody here been to Venice? Hands up, been to Venice? Seen the art galleries? Um, Roman Catholic art, this pre-Reformation art, has a certain, I mean, a certain beauty to it, a certain, also a certain content and a certain approach. And here is a picture, it's up there, of what, now, I'm not an art historian, I got this from a book. This is from uh, Hans Ruckmacher's book on modern art and the death of a culture. And he says, so I'm just quoting him, that Reformation affected art so rather than having the holy family with Mary in a, what, what color? Blue, she always dressed blue, does she? And they, they're all sort of looking rather, um, rather holy and different to ordinary life. He says, take a look at this po picture by Jan, Jan Steen, Dutch, Steen, that sound about right? 1663. Here's the picture. It's called St. Nicholas's Feast. I invite you to look at the picture. St. Nicholas's Feast is like, I think, Christmas morning. So everybody's got a, a, uh, a present. And just have take a look, a look at that. Is this like an otherworldly holy family where they're dressed rather differently and are a bit wooden? Because if you look at it, 
It's a fascinating picture. Maria and I were looking at it last night. So, oh, can we have a couple of lights out, please? And so we could just see it a little bit better, if we possibly can. Now then, Christmas morning. This chap hasn't got the present that he thought he was going to get. He seems very upset. And she is holding out a shoe. Now, is she holding that out to say to him, see what you've got? Or maybe she see what you haven't got. But he's, he's either upset or, she, or by her, or she's trying to console him. This little chap is saying, ha ha, look what he's got. There's two, this, this boy has got his little sister and is holding her. And these two guys are singing something. So they're in, over in the corner singing. Um, Here's Grandad, who's just quietly sitting there watching it all going on. Not, not actually helping, but he's just sort of sitting there. I thought they would, you know. He's just sort of sitting there doing that. And uh, th- this lady is saying to this little girl, come on, show me. Show me what you've got. And the little girl's saying, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> uh, and um, so she's got some sort of little doll or something there, I think. Uh, but it's full of life, isn't it? It is like... Christmas morning, you know, you could imagine Christmas morning, a family situation like this. And notice what's in the foreground, which is a discarded shoe. Isn't, you, could, you can't imagine anybody painting Mary and Joseph and the discarded shoe. It, this, is, this is real life. If you've got kids, you'll know that when it comes to school, they will be saying, I can't go, I can't find my shoes. Well, you left it in the middle of the floor on Christmas morning. And uh, it just seems to me to be a remarkably human picture. And the uh, Ruckmacher, the Christian art historian, says this is sort of Reformation thinking. It's come from an idea that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Family life belongs to the Lord. It's, It's the way it is. God is with us as ordinary people, and, and there it is. So I offer that to you as a, as a thought about Reformation art. Not saintly people floating in midair with curious colored robes, but real people in real life. And then I could say Reformation science. Science was propelled by the Reformation. You can find, uh, there's, there's a book by, I can't remember his name. No. Um, it's it, it it published by the Open University, and it's saying that science was propelled by the thinking of the Reformation. The Reformation says that God is not the world. So, We're not like pantheists who believe that God is trees and mountains. We believe God made trees and mountains. So we can can observe trees and mountains. It's not an irreverent thing. We can sample them. We can test them. We can do experiments. It's not irreverent. And what we're actually doing is studying God's glory in the things he has made. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You made the mountains. Let's study them and see your glory. You made the stars, let's study them and see your glory. You made uh, all the biological systems, let's look at them with reverence and see the glory of God. I'd say that's fully in line with Reformation thinking. And Abraham Kuyper, who I mentioned right at the beginning, said, yeah, 
we can have Reformation journalism, we can have Reformation web design, except it hadn't been thought of when he said it. We can have Reformation trade unionism, we can have Reformation relief of suffering. If we take this idea of God's glory and what he's done for us and this world in which he's put us, it just opens everything up in this most exciting and wonderful way. And when I said we experience the fruits of it, it's true, isn't it? The cultures that most of us are from have been influenced to one degree or another by the Reformation. Of course, the sad thing is that as our culture more, now more gets distant from the Reformation and doesn't like the ideas of the Reformation, you fear really how much, how, what sort of culture, what sort of society we'll have in the future. Anyway, there we are, 1517, Martin Luther triggered this whole revolution culturally, politically, economically, spiritually, and we reap the benefits today. Most of us won't be put in the position of nailing anything to any church doors. Please don't nail anything to our church door because it's made of glass. None of us will be put in the position of translating the Bible into our own native language for the first time because that's already been done. And most of us probably won't in our lives be kidnapped by a friendly politician for our own good and kept in a castle. All those things happen to Luther. But we are people who've experienced the same grace of God as Martin Luther experienced. We have been touched by the same God in our lives, the same God who touched him. And in whatever scope God has given to us, we can say, let my life be for the glory of God alone in our day. Would you do that? Is that what you would like to say? Let that be me? Amen. Let's close by singing 850.